Man, God is, man, God is so good. I'm glad to be here. I hope you're glad to be here. Um, man. Look, so what we're going to do tonight, we're going to talk about the series, but look, we will have done, I will have done my job if after we talk about a lot of stuff, we've got a lot of stuff tonight, if we all leave, man, why don't you go back, Jared, to that last slide, that one. If we all leave with a clearer picture of Jesus, and if we are driven to the Word of God, the Bible, and we're the Word of God made flesh, Jesus, if we're driven to these scriptures, man, we would just see blindingly, beautifully Jesus. We would have done our job tonight. God is with us. God is wooing us. God is pulling us closer in, deeper in, to see Jesus. And when we see Jesus... We get to know Jesus, and we get to know then, okay, now let's go together, and we get to follow. And that's what we talked about last week. Thanks, Jared. Let's go back. We're, we're in this series of the Anabaptist core convictions. And their core convictions, last week we talked about how it's not so much a denomination. In fact, Anabaptism is not a denomination. What Anabaptism is is a flavor that has given birth to denominations, Okay? And where we have, as a church have been, if you remember the picture from Jason and Becky's yard last week, was there is this rod, this clothesline. And let's say that rod is Anabaptism that's 500 years old. It was there when we bought the house, right? And then what happens is a tree gets planted or a church gets planted, huh, huh? And it grows up and it begins to grow around and fuse and all of a sudden a guy like Adam walks into Becky in Jason's backyard and said, that's weird. And then you think, oh, all of a sudden Providence Community Church has grown up and ebbed and flowed and this or that. And we've been faithful to Jesus, trying to follow Jesus, trying to be where he's at. And we said, wow, maybe we've got a connecting point. Maybe we've got an anchor that we may have just only now realized. Maybe we've grown up around a stream of faith and we call it anabaptism. And it's a touch point. It's, it's a way that we can look and say, this is kind of who we've become. And our convictions help guide who we will become. Because as we talked about last week, our theology, our convictions are what guide our practices. And our practices have always been to believe the gospel, to belong to one another, and then to bless the city and the world. And so how we believe, how we belong, and how we bless is influenced then by the kind of stream and the kind of church that we've grown up to be, how we're thinking, how we're uh, looking at the scriptures, how we're looking at Jesus. And last week in our first core conviction, that was started by a group called the Anabaptist Network and explained very well and plainly in a book called The Naked Anabaptist, which many of you are going to get which many of you will look at in our missional communities to process this, to think of this together. This is something that is not just going to happen up here. You all need to ask questions and wrestle with it and talk amongst your leaders. And we, we, We're doing this together. This is new for all of us. So we're looking at these convictions. They're guiding our practices. And last week we talked about that first one. And if I were to put it on a little business card, if I were just to reduce it to one sentence, 
It would basically be that disciples of Jesus don't just worship him at a distance. Disciples of Jesus are called to follow, woo, are called to make a crazy robot noise. Disciples aren't just called to worship Jesus at a distance and say, Jesus, you're nice and pretty. Disciples are called to follow Jesus closely. And the Anabaptist stream of faith or tradition is a group of guys we looked at last week that sought to follow Jesus, to drag him outside of the distance and outside of theory and philosophy and pull him right into the center point of their life and to follow him. And tonight we're gonna see that when they pull Jesus right to the center of their life, it's going to change the way they read this book. And they're going to find that Jesus reframes and reshapes and radically alters these scriptures. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. And as a preacher, every week I wonder if something's going to you know, land, if there's going to be a sentence or a thought or an illustration or something that God really uses and you know, works on people. And I would have never thought that last week it would be the phrase that Felix Mons, one of these Anabaptists we looked at, was the Ryan Gosling of Anabaptists. And I've got to show you this before we get any further. Jared, will you do this? Hey, girl, the only thing you need to reform is your relationship status. This is the Ryan Gosling, and we have the Smiths to thank for this, but this is something that they evidently clung on to. Not this business of following Jesus, man, but this Felix Mons, this Ryan Gosling guy. Look at him, he's beautiful. And he's doing the Ryan Gosling kind of thing, the hey girl thing. But he talks about how the only thing you need to reform is your relationship status. So last week, not only did we talk about these guys, three of them in particular, that sought to follow Jesus, and they followed him even through suffering and even through their death, but we talked about the Reformation. So Anabaptism was a movement that was born out of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther in the 1500s uh, started the shockwave because the established church of the time in the West was the Catholic church, okay? So what happens were these guys and, uh, were a part of another reformer that followed Martin Luther and is a guy named Ulrich Zwingli. Hopefully this is a review for you guys. If you're confused, maybe go back and listen to last week so we'll talk about some of this stuff. But what we need to know tonight is that this was a birth out of that reformation. And Anabaptists and some other movements would say, reformation, Thank you. You got us step one, two, and three. But a lot of scholars have come back and called Anabaptists and other things part of the radical Reformation, okay? So if they took it one, two, three, Zwingli, Luther, Calvin, the Anabaptist streams would maybe say we took it steps four, five, and six, okay? And so one of the things, we need to know that this movement was birthed out of another movement, and we need to know that like the Reformers, Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and these type of bigwig guys, they sought to elevate the scriptures to an authoritative position now. And here's why. Because like the reformers, when you leave the Catholic church, you leave the Catholic church's leader, which is the pope. And so the reformers and the Anabaptists said, if we're not going to follow the Pope and this kind of what he says becomes dogma and doctrine, if we're not going to follow the traditions of the Catholic Church, 
We need to find some sort of authority, some sort of figure piece. And what they did was they said, now it is scripture. And what we need to understand is by the 1500s, in the teens and 20s, when this movement is taking steam and sweeping across Europe, what happens then is not only do they say, we want to leave the church and leave the Pope's authority, they're able to put the scriptures on top because for the first time in history, watch this, the scriptures that were originally written in Hebrew and Greek had been later on translated into the language of Latin and only the learned, educated, theologian, priest, monks were able to read it in the original languages and then in the approved Latin language of the Roman Catholic Church. So what happened around this time is, all of a sudden, people were translating it out of Latin and into languages like German and some Dutch languages, and all of a sudden it started to get into the language of the people, right? Now, this was also coincided with the time of the printing press. Anybody remember your 10th grade history and all this, the printing press? You, she's shaking her head, but I couldn't tell you a thing about the printing press other than that it was around this time, and it printed all these Bibles. And of course, it was very expensive because you couldn't just get on Microsoft Word and print it out and send it to your buddy or via email. So what happens is you've got the Pope out, you've got scriptures up, and the scriptures are finding their ways into the hands of the people. And it's finding their way into the hands of the people in their languages, and so here's where our Anabaptist friends come into play. Unlike Calvin and Luther and Zwingli, the Anabaptists were persecuted by all of these different folks. And they were persecuted because all of a sudden, some of these established churches, these new reformed churches, became similar to the Catholic church in that they became state churches, approved churches. Later on, we'll have the Church of England, and then the Lutheran Church becomes the established, legalized, this kind of church. Anabaptists never got that for them. They were meeting in homes, they were being run out of town, and they were baptizing adults, and they were reading, watch, the scriptures. So what they did was, because they didn't have an established church, they didn't have a legal church, so they started what's called the free church movement. They didn't have granddaddy, big church, established church. And so what happens is all these little guys are meeting in homes. Does it sound familiar? They're committed now to the apostles' teaching because even though Bibles were expensive, now they're printed and you can get a bunch of your friends or you can have a rich guy help and now you can have the Bible in these homes. So they're committed to the teachings, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. They're baptizing one another. Does this start to sound familiar? The Anabaptists are following Jesus. They're elevating scripture to a place of authority for their life and how they do church. And they're able to do that because they can read it now and they have it in their homes. And even though they're uneducated and they're unauthorized uh, to worship and to baptize, they're getting killed. They're able to be these mobile little free groups of people spreading and gathering all around Europe. Last week we talked about the first baptism by a guy named George Bluecoat. And pretty soon, within months, thousands of people are getting baptized. Thousands of people are hearing the news and the idea that was revolutionary that says, let's not baptize as infants, let's baptize followers of Jesus. And they're able to do this because they read this book and they're committed to say, this is what we think the New Testament is doing and teaching. 
So tonight, we're going to look at um, this, this way that they viewed the scriptures. Because the, one of the bumper stickers for the reformers, like I've mentioned, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, was this Latin phrase called sola scriptura. And sola scriptura means scripture alone. And so not only were the Anabaptists meeting in homes and reading scriptures and now interpreting scriptures and now letting scriptures dictate how they follow Jesus, everybody else gets to start reading scriptures because the reformers say, hey, dude, you don't need the Pope. You, you've got the scriptures and you've got the Holy Spirit. And so the cat was let out of the bag. And so, not, so then what happens is when you say scripture alone, what then starts to happen in the more authorized churches is they get to write out all these theological tomes, all these big books and libraries, and they get to say, this is how we interpret scripture. And suddenly, when that becomes your only authority, someone's interpretation of scripture gets to be the bar that you set. And it gets to be the bar by which you gauge everybody else. And so what happens is this interpretation of Scripture is now what? Elevated. It becomes a new sort of Pope's authority. And then you can kill people based on their adherence to that interpretation or not. So you've got these Anabaptists running around baptizing adults and then getting killed and persecuted for doing that because that was an act of treason against the state church. And so then what happens is the Anabaptists begin to wrestle with scripture that's in their possession, in their living rooms all of a sudden. And the Anabaptists weren't able to write these lofty theological tomes like Calvin's Institutes or you know, a lot of Luther's stuff. How we get their ideas and their thoughts are in little letters. They're reticent to make a lot of big, lofty doctrinal interpretations because they were less concerned always with what do you know if you read all these little Anabaptist letters and you know, little treaties and tracts and all this, they're always more concerned with how do you live. And this isn't unique to Christian circles, but the Anabaptists were pounding it always. And so they started to develop some different, distinct views of how to treat the scriptures. And Stuart Murray, who wrote The Naked Anabaptist, uh, really kind of set out some distinctives. And so when you read the primary sources of Anabaptists like I have, you're going to find these four almost in every, little theory, uh, in every little tract and thing they wrote. So they thought, you know what? We've got the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said what? That the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And so they believed that ordinary Christians without degrees and, and lofty, you know, high-minded language skills, ordinary Christians could interpret with the help of the Holy Spirit. This is something that persists in the denominations that have come out. Uh, some brethren denominations, some Amish denominations, they really take this whole priesthood of believers that Peter says pretty seriously. And they think if you've got the Holy Spirit, dude, he will lead you into truth. But that interpretation needs to be affirmed. And that's the second distinctive. Interpretation was a community practice. So in these denominations and in this early Anabaptism, it wasn't that you just go over here and you read this little verse and you come back and say, look, yo, the Holy Spirit just talked to me and we all got to wear brown pants and only brown pants and no shirts. It's cold in Switzerland where we're being Anabaptist, but Jesus, you know, he, he guided me. No, 
It's a community practice. So they say, no, brown pants, what are you talking about, dude? Man, black pants are cool and khaki pants, you're ridiculous. And so in these denominations, there's a sense that they dwell and that it's informed not just by uh, all of this systemized stuff that one guy did and thought out in order. It's got to be worked out in community. Because if the Spirit leads us into truth, the Spirit also leads us in unity. And so it's a novel concept. When the early church got together, they were committed to the apostles' teaching, and Paul was saying, hey, somebody's saying this, but guess what? All of us other folks, the message we receive from Jesus that's been uh, affirmed in the lives of all these other people with the Spirit and all this, that, this is the barometer, okay? So you take your little Colt Jonestown weird stuff, and, and, and you stop it. It's got to be interpreted in light of the community. And so then this interpretation beyond that is only valid if it leads to conformity to Christ. And this is what we're talking about. Look, because you can know all the, my goodness, you can know all the right things, right? What we talked about last week, what's been preached in this church before, you can know all the right things, but if you don't look like Jesus, you just know a bunch of stuff and you're a jerk. And so the only interpretation that's valid is because the Spirit is drawing you, right, to truth. He's drawing us together in unity, and ultimately he's going to draw you more and more to look like Jesus because that's what the Spirit is doing. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, all these fruits need to look more and more like Jesus. So here's where it gets really tricky. Here's where we start to, ooh, this is getting pretty tense. Because I liked reading my Bible by myself. I liked not having to answer to anybody. Oh, but all of a sudden, if my view and reading of certain passages in the Old Testament about slavery or women or doing this and that, man, if it doesn't look like Jesus, then am I really on base? Which leads to the fourth and most fundamental and most profound and most insane for the time, this distinctive it must be interpreted in light of the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I didn't hear any amens, and it sounds simple enough, but we've got to understand the time in which this sort of ideas were flourishing, these sort of people were doing it. They were doing it outside of the approved, authoritative way. And the Anabaptists are the ones that say, we're going to follow Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, we find that sometimes he upturns what we thought we knew. And he reframes and reshapes everything. And so Stuart Murray then synthesized these distinctives. There are more that we don't have time to get into, but Stuart Murray synthesized these into our second conviction, which is where we're gonna camp out tonight. And he says that Jesus is the focal point of God's revelation. We are committed to a Jesus-centered approach to the Bible and to the community of faith as the primary context in which we read the Bible and discern and apply its implications for Discipleship. Discipleship. So these early Anabaptists are saying, man, it's not enough to just have the Bible and to read the Bible and to say this is right in the Bible and this isn't. It's got to come through the lens of Jesus, and Jesus reframes everything. So I'm going to borrow an analogy from another pastor, another preacher, and I because I just could not think of a better one. And he says this, not only does Jesus reframe our Bibles and reframe our lives, with the Bible in particular, Jesus 
is the ultimate twist ending. Okay? And this is foundational. This is fundamental. And so I want to borrow this analogy of Jesus being the twist ending, and I can't talk about twist endings without thinking about one of my favorite TV shows of all time. It's called The Twilight Zone. So if you're taking notes, you need to write down The Twilight Zone in all capital letters and say, add it to Netflix now. Okay? But when you find this episode that I'm about to ruin for you, you can just skip that one, okay? And so if you're faint of heart, you're about to see some pictures that may be upsetting to you, even though they're black and white and from the 60s. So get your big boy pants on, because we're going to talk about an episode of The Twilight Zone, and The Twilight Zone invented the glorious twist ending. And so one of these episodes is called The Eye of the Beholder. And so what you find, if you go to the first picture here, is you find a woman And you find a woman that is wrapped in bandages. She cannot see. She's veiled. She's cut off. She's dark. She's in a hospital room that looks any like any hospital rooms that you've been in or seen in. And of course, you know how every Twilight Zone episode begins. It's Rod Serling looking real cool and talking weird. People talked weird back then, and he's got a cigarette, and he's doing this, and he's talking about the fifth dimension and Twilight Zone and all this. It looks like any other hospital you've ever been in, but pretty early on, you start to realize that something just is different. And here's what's different. You see her face, but you can't because it's wrapped in bandages. And you see that the nurse at the nurse's desk and the doctor in the room, you cannot ever see their face. What you see is their backs. You see them turned. You see the carefully positioned sign in their face. And you wonder after 20 minutes, okay, something is going on here. This is strange. And what you have here is this drama with the people that talked weird back then. Bud, did people really talk like that back then? Well, look. Sorry, bud. Love you. Your daughter's got a birthday. She's old now, so you just got to deal with it. So they're talking, and she's saying, please, doctor, I know I'm hideous. She keeps talking about how ugly she is. She said, I've tried everything, doctor. I've tried all the right things. I've done 10 procedures. And the doctor keeps telling her, you've only got one more time. If this doesn't work, dude, you're done. And it's building this tension, it's building this tension, and you're wondering, what is going on? And you know something's up in the shadows, but you don't know what. And you are all smart people at home, and so you can probably guess what happens next, because this is the twilight zone, and we're talking about twist endings. Layer by layer, layer by layer, layer by layer, this, the stuff comes off, and this is what you see, the most hideous person you've ever seen in your life. Of course, back then, in the 60s, you've got the Marilyn Monroe blonde and all this, And as soon as this is revealed, the doctors and nurses in the room, after restraining her and fighting her, they gasp and recoil in horror. And because this is the fifth dimension of the Twilight Zone, you find out that this ugly person is ugly in the eyes of these beholders. They look at her. They've got the pig noses. Somebody just said yes because they know it. And you see, let's look at another picture of them. You see, wait a minute. Wow, whoa, surprise, twist. And so what we have here is this. In the twilight zone, or maybe you want to talk about the sixth sense like like this other pastor did. You, you, You cannot go back now and add this to your Netflix queue and click on the eye of the beholder and sit through the first 20 minutes without an eye toward what's going to happen. It's boring. It's it's weird. It's different. You might you can enjoy it, you can watch it, but the whole time. Everything is turned on its ear because you know the twist. You know the ending. When you go back and watch The Sixth Sense, 
Becky Knight, I've called on her again. She hadn't seen the dang sixth sense. Dude, that thing is 15 years old. So I'm going to ruin that ending for you too. You can't go back and look at everything the same because Bruce Willis is dead. And when you go back and you look at him in the living room with the little kid, you realize, oh, they don't talk to one another. Oh, he's not talking to the mom. So my point, which I hope I've made clear and I've beat the horse dead, is that the twist ending obviously reframes everything that's come before it. And if this episode was to be 20 minutes extra, it would reframe everything that comes after it. The twist, everything just hinges on the twist. So when we talk about Jesus being the focal point of God's revelation, if we look at that conviction again, when we look at Jesus, what we see uh, right there, what we see then is that everything hinges on the Jesus piece. And what we have throughout history is a gradual unveiling of the, of the, the, um, the bandages, if you will. So let's look real quick at Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be picking up speed here. We're going to see that the twist ending that is Jesus reshapes everything that's come before. And I hope this passage is familiar to you. It's a brilliant passage. It's a beautiful passage. And it's a wonderful way to begin a book written to God's people, Israel, the Jews. But because Jesus at this time has lived, has taught, has brought the kingdom, has invited people into the kingdom... Then he died to throw open wide the, his arms around all the world saying, come, 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 come. Then he's raised again because death has been destroyed and he has released us from the power of Satan. Now they look back and say, hey, Hebrew people who are God's people, who had God's revelation, what has happened now is over history we've seen now that God is gradually wrapping around and, and suddenly unwrapping all the bandages. And he says it like this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. People God sent came, spoke God's word, and said, this is who God is, okay? And then the layers begin to unfold. But, the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. By his son. And so what has happened, and I've said this before at Easter, is that we have the Old Testament that is a testament to God's faithfulness, God's desire to be with human beings, to renew the earth he created. And little by little, they start to feel it out. It begins with Abraham, who takes God at his word and says, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. And then over time, Moses comes, and he rescues God's people because God is faithful. And he says, this is how we're going to act as God's people. And then the law comes. And then we've got Leviticus and the rest that fills out that Moses gives his people and says, this is how we're learning. This is how we're seeing. There's a progress here. And then come kings and judges. And then ultimately what happens is prophets are coming and they're saying, God is still faithful. God is still slow to anger, but judgment is coming. And they begin to reveal more and more and color in the lenses. And what happened is we began with this dark night. And we see the moon begin to give light. We see that in Abraham. And then we begin to see the stars. And then we begin to see that there's light behind the darkness. And God is more and more always pursuing his people. Always being faithful to his people. And watch. And his people are trying to understand their God 
and understand what it means to follow him. But then God speaks through son. And son is more than a prophet. And we see that son is more than a prophet because God, look, whom he appointed heir of all things. No prophet has been heir of all things. And through whom he also made the universe. Now wait a minute. Through the prophets, he never made a universe through them. And then verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, the exact, the exact, the exact, the exact, the perfect representation of his being. So all of a sudden, dawn, right? Dawn. You want to know what God is like? Here's not some vague biblical principles that I can apply to your life, right? Here is a person whom you can follow, Jesus. And when the dawn breaks, something really radical happens. All of a sudden, you look back and you see Peter and John and the writer of Hebrews and Paul, and they're going back and they're saying, man, look at all this stuff. Look what God was up to. Look what he was doing. And they're pulling it back into the present. And they see the traces of God's faithfulness. They see David crying out to him with all his being and saying, you're leading me, you're guiding me, you're rescuing me. But when Jesus comes, watch. We knew the God who fought for us, Israel. Now we know the God who would die, who would die for us. We know the God who would not just die for us, but he fought for us. And he's redeemed us. He's brought us into life. And this is something that should shape everything about our lives, and it should shape how we read this book. And so when we go back to Leviticus and we see all these sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews will say later, guess what? Jesus was the only sacrifice you ever need. You've heard that. And he sat down because Jesus changed everything, right? Amen. And so wouldn't it make sense then that when everybody throws around this idea of what's biblical, and this is what biblical marriage is like, well, man, what biblical are you talking about? Ah, all that other stuff I just said was really cool. But all of a sudden, we have Jesus changing everything, and we have people looking back and the apostles sorting out what everything looks like in the light of day now. So Solomon had a bunch of wives. The marriage kind of looked different. And then there's these laws about, you know, well, I eat pork. I've got tattoos. Sorry, folks. Sorry, mom and dad. But the Bible said I can't have tattoos. The Bible said I can't eat pork. The Bible said I can't have shellfish. I wear clothes with different fabrics. Do we keep the Sabbath? This is where the rubber starts to meet the road, and this is where Stuart Murray says in this conviction, now here's the trick. Because Jesus is the focal point of God's revelation, because light has dawned, and he's created a new Israel, what happens is we are committed to a Jesus-centered approach to the Bible. And so one of the early Anabaptists, if you go back one, his name was Martin Haas, the Anabaptists started to think about this and say, you know what, we're not God's people Israel, are we? Light has dawned. And, you know, Peter was told that rise, kill, and eat. Maybe the, the bandages have all kind of come off and, 
And maybe we need to sort out that God's up to something new with Israel. That Jesus was the twist ending to God's people. And all of a sudden, just like he said with Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. And maybe we see, like we've been looking at in Mark, that the temple, Jesus is the twist ending to the temple. And we don't come to church on Saturday nights and give sacrifices because Jesus has reframed and been the sacrifice once for all. And so these Anabaptists wrestle with this and they sort through this. And so one of these guys in 1538 says, we acknowledge the law. That would be the first five books and, and the rest. And so far as it agrees with the New Testament, and is an announcement, witness, type, or sign of Christ, and that is useful for the faithful in strengthening their faith. We confess that the Old Testament is a witness to Christ. Further, we grant it validity wherever Christ has not suspended it and wherever it agrees with the new. We consider it right and good if it serves faith, love, and a good Christian life. There at the end, you've got that implication of you've interpreted it right if it looks like Jesus. But right there in that middle piece, we've got to understand something. The Anabaptists early on said, Scripture is our authority. Menno Simons, who's, uh, Simons, who's started the Mennonite denomination, he wrote a lot, and he says unequivocally, God, hallelujah, the Bible is it. It's a supreme source of our life and character. But they started to wrestle with this. What does this mean now in the lens of Jesus? What does this look like? And what is this guy talking about where he's suspended it? Well, when we have a Jesus-centered approach to the Bible, we look at places, if you'll look with me, at Matthew chapter 5. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here because this really starts to tread on waters of the conviction number 7. But Jesus was the twist ending to the law. But it's important that Anabaptists realize that we need to follow Jesus and we need to take him at his word. And so Jesus says in this Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, and really the Constitution and the Magna Carta of Anabaptists, this Sermon on the Mount, these guys are going to take Jesus' words seriously. And they take Jesus' words seriously because they also find it in the written word, the Bible. So let's look. I'm in 1 Corinthians. Whoops. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, and let's start real quick. We're not going to spend a whole life, but this is what he means with suspended. Verses 17 to 18. This is Jesus' words about the law that God gave his people, okay? I'm still not in Matthew 5. He says, Do not think, this is Jesus, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So what Jesus is saying is this, and the Anabaptists pick up on this. And so when we look at the Old Testament, it is the, we look at it through the lens now of Jesus. And when we look at it through the lens of Jesus, we realize that Jesus came to fulfill it, not abolish it. So that's why your Bible is not a lot skinnier because you just have the New Testament. We look to the Old Testament as this progress of revelation, and Jesus is going to say, uh, rather the Anabaptists will say, we've not come to abolish the Old Testament. It's not a rejection of the Old Testament, but what we're doing is we're subjecting it to the words of Jesus. And what does that look like? Well, Jesus begins to say, if you look down beginning in verse 21, you've heard it said, 
you shall not murder. But I tell you, you look then again, verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, now it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I, he says in verse 32, again, you have heard it said, do not break your oath, but fulfill the vows you have made. But I tell you, he says in verse 34, Then finally we get down to verse 38 and he says, you have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And he goes on and he talks about a way of responding to the insults, the humiliations, the violence. And then he says in verse 43, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you. You've heard it said because this is the progress of revelation. These are in the first part of our law. And all of a sudden Jesus comes and he reframes it. He twists it. And he says, like places like in Exodus um, 21 verses 23 to 25, where it says, somebody takes out your leg, you take their leg. Somebody pokes your eye out, you poke their eye out. Somebody messes with your Hand, you take their hand. And it says these things. And then Jesus says, now God has spoken through son. And I tell you. So here's where it comes down. One of the phrases that Stuart Murray uses to talk about this way of the Jesus-centered, Jesus-focal point of Scripture. He says a lot of times what happens is we can be flat Bible readers. Maybe a lot of you have heard this. I know it's been said in this church and in classes. And what I mean by a flat Bible is where you say things like, well, God said it and I believe it. But then functionally, you don't keep a Sabbath. We eat pork, we eat cheese. And so what Murray synthesizes and what the Anabaptists were saying was, look, we've got to look through Jesus. And if Jesus suspends something, if Jesus looks like something, if Jesus, like the writer of Hebrews says, is the exact representation, we can't just watch leapfrog Jesus when he says, turn the other cheek. We can't just leapfrog Jesus when he says, let your yes be yes and no be no. We can't just leapfrog Jesus when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if it wasn't made explicit enough in his words, look at his life, whom we claim to follow. See conviction one. Look at his life when he's in the garden and he does not retaliate. His disciple cuts the ear off. He heals the ear. He practices what he preaches, right? Look when he hangs on the cross and he forgives them, right? But we just want, man, let's just go. Jesus, that stuff is too hard, man. The Sermon on the Mount must be for heaven. It must be something that's not for us. And the Anabaptists and the stream in which they find themselves, they say, wait a minute. If we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to say, what did his life look like? What did his words look like? And we can't just go back and start cherry picking from our Bibles. So what does it mean to have scriptures elevated, to have scriptures in that place of authority, right? But also to do it from the lens of Jesus. Let's look here. Here's a little illustration. Maybe it's helpful for you. This is the Jesus lens. So you've got the red line, the Old Testament, and it points toward Jesus, Then, after the Jesus event, the life, death, resurrection, you've got the New Testament that goes back, okay? 
So what you have is the Old Testament pointing toward Jesus, and then you've got the New Testament, watch, pointing back to Jesus. So we've got this funnel. If you've got the letters of Moses, the law of Moses, it all spirals down and funnels down into Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And so then you've got Paul's letters. You put it at the top of that red line on the New Testament, and it all reflects back and says, here's what I think about Jesus. Then you've got the letters of Peter going back and saying, when I was with Jesus, this is what I learned from Jesus. And it all funnels down and points to Jesus. And so when you look through the Jesus lens, you've got to start with Jesus, not leapfrog Jesus. And you've got to, when you look backwards, you see that Jesus interprets the Old Testament. So Jesus who is God's son, who has been appointed heir of all things, who is the exact representation of God, whom Paul will say in Colossians is the image of the invisible God, where the fullness of God dwells. Stay with me. Then he gets to make the call as to how we read back. And then everything in the New Testament comes back and reflects because Jesus informs everything that comes after him. This is what it looks like. This is what it means. We're called to be Jesus-centered Bible readers. So if all scripture points to Jesus, if the full revelation of God's word is Jesus, we will follow Jesus and we must read through the lens of Jesus. And like that twist ending, it's got to reshape everything. It's got to reshape everything. Paul will talk about, we don't have time, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you're writing anything down and you don't believe a word I say, look in verses 13 to 18. He talks about the veil, the veil of Moses. And when the old covenant is read, that Jesus said he didn't come to throw away and abolish, what it just means is that now that Jesus is here, whenever the Old Testament is read, there's still these bandages, there's still these things shadowing. It's not, it's obscuring, it's not quite the fullness but when Christ is preached and people turn to Jesus, what happens then is the veil is taken away. And he says, and where the spirit is, that's where the life is. And it points to Jesus and it bears witness to Jesus. And it bears witness in the body that the new covenant has come. I know we're talking about a lot, but that's in Jeremiah 31. He talks about the spirit coming to us. You with me? Jesus comes, and what you need to know is he's reframed it, he's reshaped it, the bandages are off, the veil is off, and it's Jesus, 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 Jesus. So let's finish out, let's get back to the core conviction. Because where the spirit is, there's life and there's freedom. And we've got this Jesus-centered approach to the Bible. We also need to have a Jesus-centered approach to the community of faith as the primary context in which we read the Bible and discern and apply its implications for discipleship. We don't want none of y'all going rogue on us. We don't want me going rogue on you, right? So we need to trust and lean on one another. And this is tough in a situation where I'm preaching all the time, right? I'm the one that gets to have a microphone on that makes funny noises and yell at you for about 45 minutes every night. But I need you, I need Pastor Bud, I need Pastor Drew, I need our community leaders to be this kind of family, this team. And would you help me? Let's find ways to, to celebrate the fact that the Holy Spirit is in all of us. And y'all may not have degrees or whatever. I've got a degree and it doesn't really matter, okay? What I need is the Holy Spirit and my brothers and sisters. What I need is for you guys to pray about who you are 
and what you can do to strengthen the body of Christ. So I ain't just one guy yelling at you, and you're just the people sitting there listening. Because we're called to be a body, we're called to be together. And so it takes reading this book, not in isolation, but in community. And when we catch the fact that it's not just biblical principles and things we can cherry pick out of here, there, or everywhere, when we have the Jesus-centered approach that looks back and looks forward, all of a sudden we get to say, wait a minute, we're following a dynamic, powerful Savior. And this church, y'all, it ain't just built on the Bible. It is built on the solid rock of Jesus, who is the cornerstone. So let's close and hear what Jesus says in chapter 5 of John. I know we've hip-hopped around. But let's hear what Jesus says. Let's him, let him get the final word, Okay. He says in John chapter 5, let's look down here in verse 37. He's talking about <clears throat> these people who are following the old covenant. And he says that he's greater than the prophet John. And he says in verse 37, The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've heard his voice, you've ne excuse me, you have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Whew. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me to have life. It all comes down to what we do with Jesus. And so if we look at this last thing, if we have searched the scriptures and it leads us to Jesus, it's going to be worked out in our lives. Here's an early Anabaptist. He says it's God's earnest command that we should not stray from the Bible is what he's talking about, the scriptures, to the right nor the left in word and action. Christ himself points to the scriptures that we should search them. Is that what we just read? The content of the whole scripture is briefly summarized in this. Honor and fear God the Almighty and Christ his Son, whoever understands this and proves it by his deeds. Whoever understands this and proves it by his deeds is not blind like these men Jesus talked about, but has understood the whole scriptures. You want to understand the whole scriptures, look at Jesus. You want to understand the whole picture, kit and caboodle, what God is like, look at Jesus. You want to understand the whole way to live life in this world, look at Jesus. You want to understand the whole way to bless this world, to believe the gospel, to belong to one another, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. If I say one thing, I'm going to say that every stinking week I'm up here. And I'm going to do it from the word of God, the Bible. Because when we search the Bible, that's where we find Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you speak to us. We're grateful that you didn't just leave us alone. 
We're grateful that you sent Moses, you sent the prophets, and you sent these faithful, godly people who sometimes weren't so godly, but they scratched and climbed and listened and tried in their context, in their way, in their culture, to find out what you're up to. We're thankful for those men. We're thankful for your people. We're thankful that you're faithful. And Lord, we're thankful that you sent Jesus. And you didn't just send him to teach us a bunch of stuff. You sent him to teach and show us and to guide us. And then when Jesus is raised in victory and ascends to your right hand and you've put everything, everything under his feet, you've given all authority to him to tell us yes and to tell us no and to tell us go and to tell us stop, We thank you that when he ascended, he also sent the helper to illuminate us, to shine light into our hearts, to shine light onto the pages of your word, that the word of God, Jesus, would inform and ignite the word of God, the Bible. We believe that it is sharper than any two-edged sword and is profitable, it is good, and it is from you. So we're imperfect witnesses to this. We're imperfect in understanding this. So we need you, we need you. And we need Jesus because he's still alive and he's still teaching and he's still guiding and he's still loving. Teach us as a church. Guide us in the right interpretation of your word that it would make us all look more and more like Jesus. And when we have those questions and when we have those issues, would the twist ending be the step to point us to the truth. In the name of Jesus, amen.